Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're very happy to be speaking with Ashish Patel, partner of Avishkar Capital, a Nairobi-based private equity fund focusing on financing early-stage enterprises in East Africa. Ashish, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Esther. It's a pleasure to be on. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to impact investing? My background's um, African, so I'm third-generation Indian-African, as they call us here. Born and brought up in a uh, sleepy town called Mombasa on the eastern coast of Kenya. I spent most of my childhood here. At the age of 16, left for England, where I did my higher education, graduated from London School of Economics and in pure economics and accounting, and then qualified as a chartered accountant with uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers in London. I then went on to join Intel Capital, which I led for best part of uh, 12 years running their investment and strategic investment program and M&A and strategy all across Europe, Middle East and Africa, following which I spent a year and a half in Prague doing a startup by the name of ABG, which we eventually listed on NASDAQ. I met my wife in England. We were there for a good part of 25 years before I decided to return back to Kenya with Aureus Capital, which was one of the, I can call it granddaddies of impact investing which started its uh, life in the early 90s, investing all across Eastern Africa, Southern and Western Africa. Eventually, uh, we were acquired by Abraj, who I was with until 2019. And then I took a little time off. It's when I did a little bit of a tour in India and was introduced to the uh, entire concept of uh, impact investing, having been kindly invited by Vishkar, Vineet, and having spent a good part of a month just looking at what they did in India, and that's got me excited into impact investment, which is what I came back to Kenya with. And when you went overseas to England and worked there in Europe for so long, did you always intend to come back to East Africa? Not at all, actually. As I said, I was there 25 years. I have a home. I had two lovely kids there. The idea never crossed my mind to come back to Africa. It wasn't until as I mentioned, that I joined Aureus Capital and the opportunity turned up, which makes you think, why not? So having just spent time in Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, I used to spend a lot of time in Russia as well, doing a lot of high-tech investing, that I felt, why not Africa and why not Kenya, which is where obviously my foundations are from. And uh, having had some good friends and family here, it attracted me. Uh, 10 years on, I'm still here. So I guess this is home now. And Avishkar is focused on East Africa, but has a strong link to India. So please tell us about the structure. So Avishkar is a very interesting organization, which is over 20 years old. Those in India know it extremely well, that those who are in the true impact space know Avishkar extremely well. It was a business that was founded by a gentleman, a lovely guy by the name of Vinith Rai, who was a forester and then saw the need for capital to enable essentially grassroots coming up of, as we put it in our firm, the other 3 billion. And in the case of India, it was the other 700 million people. Where we saw that, or we noted very quickly that entrepreneurship is not a privilege 
of the Western world or the rich world, but it's actually something that's inbuilt and inbred into many people, but most of them lacked the financial resources to be able to take an idea and convert it into a business. So he set up uh, Avishkar. Today, Avishkar, after 20 years of just pure organic growth, we have three businesses. The first business, which is our largest chunk, is the credit business, which is under the name of Arohan, which is one of India's largest uh, microfinance bank, which we seeded about just below a decade ago. That's got a lending book now primarily to women. Over 95% of the loans are to women and giving them less than $200 really to do very simple businesses like either sewing or buying the materials or in some instances, education for their children, which is then paid off to us in a very meaningful way over time. We saw the success of our Rohan, which was really identified as a segment by one of our other sister companies, which is called IntelliCap, which is an advisory arm where we tend to advise whether it's DFIs or family offices or governments around a variety of impact issues across India and Africa. And we use IntelliCap as really our eyes and ears on the ground because we tend to see a lot of forward-looking trends through a lot of the interactions that they have with the thousands of people that are within the IntelliCap network. One of them, which is extremely successful for us, is an event called Sunculp, which is now Africa's largest, I would say, largest entrepreneur uh, roadshow where young businesses can come and interact with financiers, advisors, DFIs, or institutions like yourself, Esther. So it's just an ecosystem buildup. And the third part of our business is Avishkar Capital, which is the investing arm where we see the opportunity of really taking these very young businesses who are doing immense good at scale for the majority of the populations in the types of countries we live in, the least developed countries, and providing them with risk capital in order to scale them to a point where mainstream large private equity firms or institutions that are looking to address a market can either acquire these businesses. For us, the technical jargon that we tend to use is the missing middle. These are institutions or people that have excellent ideas, are scaling well, but effectively need risk capital to be able to take them to the next level. So these are the three businesses that Avishka Capital have. And then we have a very strong governance across these businesses led by a board that's made up of independent members and our shareholders include the likes of uh, Triodos Bank, Shell Foundation, and also FMO out of Holland. So we've got an institutional shareholding base and a very institutionalized uh, governance system as well. And it's great to hear about some of these actors, which we know are in the impact ecosystem. I've had conversations with recent guests on the podcast about how there are so many actors in this ecosystem, but often they don't connect. And so our efforts are often disconnected and then not linked in an ecosystem that would bring more entrepreneurs to the place that we're all trying to get them to go. So it's terrific to hear that you guys are doing that. So this will be Avishkar's seventh fund, but the first focused on Africa. Uh, You've told us about the investment thesis. What is the size of the fund and are you focusing on any particular sectors? So it's a hundred million dollar fund focused on Eastern Africa. We're focusing on the sectors which we feel extremely comfortable and we know to deliver highest levels of impact, which is uh, financial inclusion, which will take a substantial portion of the fund for us, agri-tech, and then what we define as essential services, which is effectively climate or, or businesses that are having a positive impact on climate 
education and healthcare, right? So these are the, the main sectors that the fund wants to, to invest in. And we're really leveraging our learnings over the last 20 years, having invested in over 65 businesses across India and Southeast Asia to see what's worked in those regions, why, and what could be potentially replicated in its own way in the context of Africa. So it's what we refer to as the South learnings that we're trying to bring in. The focus area for us is going to be East Africa. So that's as far north as Ethiopia, with the core country being Kenya, going into Uganda, Tanzania, and Zambia. So that's the remit of the fund. We're headquartered out of Nairobi. We've got a team, which is all local investors, which we find is incredibly important to be able to access that local deal flow, particularly if part of our entire mission is to enable local entrepreneurs to be able to create large businesses that are solving big issues for the mass market in these countries. And I wonder if you could give us an example of maybe an education investment and a health investment that you've done in India. One of the issues we've run into uh, when we talk with investors is that these sectors, health and education, are they need quite a lot of investment for the impact created, but in most countries, they're still funded mostly by public money. So I wonder if you could tell us just some examples of models or businesses that you think are ripe for this type of catalytic and private sector investment that you're doing. So it's a very uh, good observation. And I, I think education in particular is moving. We've got to solve for what has become the embedded or the model that has worked for the last three, four generations and saying, how do we leverage technology now such that we can provide those same quality of education to remote parts of countries where the infrastructure doesn't exist or the quote unquote discipline of education systems isn't quite still there. So in our instances, we're leveraging technology, but you know, if you take Kenya, for instance, or India, you cannot go and have education on a hundred percent digital medium. It's just something culturally that is very difficult for families to accept. What we're finding is that there is a hybrid where you have to have certain levels of mediums, which are physical education, and it's complemented by e-learning tools and e-learnings methods where you can support children in their areas of weakness and not necessarily give them the same amount of time where their strengths already are. So we've been, a lot of this is still, I would say, evolving. There aren't any businesses that I can say, hey, Esther, this one's just knocking it out of the park now in terms of profits. I think many of these businesses are knocking it out of the park in terms of number of users that they're getting on board. And certainly we're seeing the results in terms of better outputs from children, but we've still got a long way to bridge. And that in Africa, I would say we're at least five or 10 years behind because whilst we talk about the acceptance, the adaption and the adoptability of technology in the local African context. And Kenya, is, we are, we're extremely versed with technology, with, with the way we use money and, and the way we transact. We're still pretty much in the education space, a very physical-led system, which was set or we've inherited from the colonial days, which we've still got to work our way through. So we're working with education institutions where we feel hey, we can take this business model and actually transfer parts of it into a digital medium. But we're finding there are many hurdles that we've got to solve for, from simple things like cost of bandwidth to the availability of bandwidth to the availability of PCs to basic availability of electricity. So it's not just something that fits everybody. The same is true for the healthcare sector. But in the healthcare sector, 
We're seeing a faster rate of innovations, particularly after COVID hit, where there's a lot more of telemedicine that's coming on board. There's a lot more of disruption that's happening in the healthcare, physical healthcare space, where the cost reductions allow treatment to be extended to the poorer at a much more cost-effective way, but the quality of the healthcare is essentially there. So there are methods in the healthcare sector which allow you to strip costs out to be able to deliver the same quality of services using technology for one, and telemedicine as a way to do some level of remote uh, medical care as well. So both these industries are vibrant in Asia, India, and in Kenya. We would say that there is a lead time, five, seven years between the two, And we've just got to be very much aware of the local nuances before we say this worked in the US, has to work in India, will work in Africa. So I think that's the key difference. That's fascinating to hear, Ashish, because I'd say here in the United States, we've seen similar advances in telemedicine and educational learning through digital means during the pandemic, but it doesn't always work. And I know even in my children's school, we had a real struggle with the distance learning because for small kids, it's very hard to learn on the computer. And there are all sorts of challenges there. So good luck working those out. Um, one of the reasons that you're bringing Avishkar to East Africa is because you have learned so many lessons from India. And the South Cooperation that you're talking about is, of course, very important in the UN system, taking lessons from one developing country and bringing them to another. I wonder if you could tell us some of the similarities of working in these markets, kind of East Asia, Southeast Asia, where you guys have learned your lessons, some of the similarities to the African context and some of the key differences. Sure. And just indulge me a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of my three, four weeks in India that I spent with Beneath and the team whilst I was just touring some of the companies that we've invested in there. And it was that eureka moment, I would say, where I noted that I've been to India many times, obviously, with my heritage, but never from the context of understanding how the economy works. This was very much of a business diligence trip rather than a social trip. And what you realize is that there are immense number of similarities to the East from Africa relative to the West, some of them being the heavy dependency on agriculture. India and most of Africa, many parts of Africa, are exceptionally dependent on the output of agriculture. And you can see the GDP grow or drop based on rainfall patterns as opposed to the fundamental economics of the country. You will also note that in India, just like in Africa, it is a small scale farming. So it's a typical farming is less than five acres, if not less than one acre. And as, as uh, time progresses, this, the acreage is dropped through inheritance or the, how, as farmlands get passed on to the children. And therefore, the productivity of these countries on a per acre basis are significantly less than the West where we've had a tendency to have large scale farming, high levels of automation, exactly what we don't have in in India, nor in Africa. So that was one. The second is, I I would say the similarities between the haves and the have nots is just as desperate as one another. So the haves in India have a lot, but don't have much. We saw the same trends in Africa, particularly in certain parts of Africa. And therefore, we felt that there is a massive market of the underserved population with large problems that need to be fixed and resolved that we could address. And then the priorities of people, right? So the average Kenyan today, other than food and housing, the number one priority for a family would be education. And that's something that also resonates in India. 
the need for high quality healthcare also resonated in India. The need and the understanding of climate issues very well understood in Kenya for, they may not say it with the sophisticated words that you and I may use, but they can understand weather patterns are changing, droughts are coming. They can see the change affecting them from a day to day. So the, there were many similarities, which was, which informed a lot of the strategy for the fund that we've set up. In terms of the differences, there are some very obvious differences, right? India is, is a single 1.3 billion uh, people market with an economy over two and a half trillion dollars, quite large. Whereas Africa, whilst we talk about Africa as a singular country, it's actually made up of quite a few different countries with very different cultures. And therefore, your ability to do business in Kenya does not necessarily mean you can move into Tanzania or Uganda, which is in the same part of the world because of cultural differences, political differences and complete different tax regions. So therefore, the market size is much smaller. And then we've also found that the access of credit, interestingly enough, is much more difficult in Africa, and it's a lot more expensive than what we've seen in India, right? Where India, in many instances, have even regulated the cost at which credit to the poor go. In Africa, it is not so much the case, or in Kenya. And therefore, we're finding that the access of credit capital availability is that much less. And therefore, we see a tremendous amount of opportunity in that space as well. So these are just some high-level thoughts that you know I have right now, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more similarities and differences to what I've just said. Thanks for pointing out some of the challenges that we know with the mobile money that after Kenya had such spectacular success with M-Pesa and some of the other mobile money opportunities that many businesses tried to import or take wholesale the Kenyan model and bring it to other countries. And of course, it doesn't work for all of the challenges and the reasons that you've highlighted. So I wanted to go back to a point you said where Avishkar is really focusing on local investors, local fund managers. And one of the things on the ground in many of the countries where we work is that it seems to be much, much easier for expat founders to get funded all across Africa than local entrepreneurs and fund managers who have not, say, been educated in the West. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that issue and how Avishkar is looking to address it. I'll start by saying, whilst it's an observation, we don't necessarily see it as an issue because we really subscribe to entrepreneurs being entrepreneurs. And we welcome every entrepreneur to do what's right for, for the economy and the people in general. Obviously, we're very much focused around impact. Where we see the opportunity is that we feel that there are a lot more local entrepreneurs that have not had the, the stage to present their ideas in the right way. And they have some brilliant ideas which are solving some significant issues that are local. What we found is that these entrepreneurs are extremely good operationally and they can actually get stuff done because they know the local networks. But they may not have the ability to articulate their plan in a way or use the buzzwords that we all love to hear in our, in our typical DFI type of communities. So what we note is that a lot of these local entrepreneurs have not been given the podium. And if they've been given the podium, have not been given the training or the finesse to be able to present or pitch their ideas in a way that is accepting to investors that themselves, in many instances, are foreign, right? So there is a bit of a mismatch between where the capital is coming from versus where the opportunities sets are coming from. So our hope is that we would like at the end of our fund to have said, hey, 70% of our entrepreneurs 
are local, even though an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur in our book. But we would want to see local entrepreneurs because we need to be able to demonstrate and build confidence with local entrepreneurs that they can do it. And in many instances, they can. They just don't have the access to the capital. And I believe it is a question of time where one or two large successes will in themselves bring about a catalytic impact for a complete a wave of new entrepreneurs that will come in from all over Africa to really do. And we're beginning to see some of this, right? In Nigeria, particularly in the West African context, you're seeing a lot of local entrepreneurs coming up with solid business plans. And in India, as we always say, it's very difficult to see expatriate entrepreneurs because the Indian entrepreneurs have really taken over the scene with coming out. So there's no reason why we can't do the same in Kenya. So we're hopeful. That's great to hear. We know that from our work in LDCs, that so much of this is training and access to exactly as you say, how do you prep someone to pitch in a way that's more likely to get them success? How do you prepare a grant proposal in the format that it's used to being seen by a DFI? So it's great to hear that you're building the ecosystem in that way, because we also see that there are tremendous numbers of fantastic ideas and great entrepreneurs who just haven't had that access yet. So which African industries do you see as the most promising for the future? So if I had to look at the big problems coming our way in Kenya or in East Africa, I would say climate mitigation is very high on our list right now. We're seeing, and and do remember for East Africa, we've got a massive coastal line as well. Fisheries are a big contributor to the economy. Tourism on the back of just spectacular natural landscape on in terms of coral marine life is vibrant. All of this is at risk today beyond the carbon topics and issues that you and I talk about on the day-to-day life. So climate resilience has got to be top of mind in local investing. And there are many local ideas that we're coming across in terms of agri-tech, particularly. How do you use technology to bring about more, more sustainable agriculture? a lot of energy production through solar, wave, and other means, and sustainable fisheries, for example. These are all what are classed as sustainable climate mitigants that we should look at. That's one. We're very hopeful around financial tech or fintech or financial inclusion. We're not big investors on the back of just fintech, right? So that's become a very generic term. can mean anything to anybody. We're much more around How do you leverage technology such that you can make credit decisions to extend money for productive reasons to that segment of the economy and population that have not had access to capital? And women play a massive and major role in this because, again, women are a big contributor to the economy in Kenya. In fact, some would argue bigger than men, but they need the access to capital affordable capital in a fair way. So we see that as uh, extremely important for the development of these countries. And then uh, the other big area for us is agri-tech, just mentioned before, not just from a climate resilience perspective, but also the productivity perspective. So for us, agri-tech extends all the way from inputs to management of fields using technology to post-harvest around storage using technology. And we've got a company in India called Argos, which is doing exactly this using uh, heavy high tech for enabling small farmers to do a level of storage to reduce post-harvest losses. 
and then connectivity into the market as well. And use financing to be able to finance farmers along the value chain such that they can improve the number of yields that they have every year. So these are just some of the areas that we feel Kenya has or East Africa has a lot to offer. And one area we've been hearing a lot about lately, Ashish, is renewable energy credits. So I wonder if you've been thinking about that for your fund or if it's come up in the discussions around East African investments, that because so many companies are making net zero commitments, they essentially have to buy offsets and that many companies are now looking to emerging markets as a place to have more valuable offsets. For example, to buy a kilowatt hour of renewable energy in Kenya would be worth more than the same in California. I wonder if that's coming into your thinking at all with this fund. Very much. There are two aspects, right? The climate credit portion of it, probably it's a much longer term investment without going too much detail into the funds mathematics in itself. Most of our funds are on a 10-year life and most of the renewable credit funds require a lifespan of 15 to 20 years before they can actually make a purchase. However, we can complement that extremely well. So there are certain areas around, for example, off-grid energy, where you can provide or do business models that provide energy to the households in an economic way that fits my core fund. But in addition, or to the side, we're in discussions around creating a sister fund which is around carbon credits. And this is exactly to make use of the natural benefits Africa has to offer. So Africa has some of the largest wild landscapes remaining on the planet now, right? So we'd all talk about Amazon, but after Amazon would be Africa. And in Africa, the Congo forest or the Congo basin is the top five in terms of carbon capture today. But there aren't enough schemes that make it worthwhile for these forests to be sustainable without some form of monetization, without killing them all off. And therefore, we see big opportunities to preserve natural habitats by using carbon schemes, which can then be brought to be commercialized with whether it's uh, pharmaceutical companies or energy companies, which need large offset offsets to make themselves carbon neutral by whenever they've, they've mandated themselves to do. We see a big opportunity. I think it's just a structuring issue around which fund is the appropriate vehicle to do, simply because that's the way investors work. Exactly. It's great to hear that you're seeing the promise there as well, because for least developed countries who are our clients, this is an area of great growth for them. So there's a lot of interest in it. So Ashish, as we wrap up, what one thing would you do if you could to increase the flow of finance to entrepreneurs in emerging markets? That's a very interesting question. There are many things one could do. The one aspect to help is to have more private sector capital come in. There's a role for UNCDF. There is a role for DFIs. There is a role for private sector. And the end game is that unless private sector comes in at scale, the problem in itself that we are trying to solve for is too large for with due respect, just the institutions like UN or DFIs to be able to do. And therefore, if we can change or educate the private sector around the perception of risk in Africa, that would be the single most catalytic event for us because we are generally seen in Kenya as an exceptionally high risk opportunity. But the reality is when you're on the ground is that what may appear as a risk to you sitting in New York or Washington is actually not a risk when you're on the ground because of the different mitigants that you have on the ground. And therefore, I think 
ways to reduce the perceived risks in these markets would in itself be a major catalytic event for private sector participation, which would be yet again another massive catalytic impact on entrepreneurship on the, on the continent. And would you say education about the risks is effective or are you talking about de-risking finance coming in? Both. I think you need to start with the de-risking of finance to come in, which demonstrates success, which leads to education, which leads to capital coming in, right? Nobody wants to educate themselves if they haven't seen the proof points of money in the first instance, right? So I think to entice people to come to educate themselves, you've got to demonstrate some success. And that's where I think that sort of financing is very important. Thank you so much, Ashish, for being with us today and sharing your insights about the market. Thank you. And thanks also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.